Chapter Seventeen of the Story of Ab. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Story of Ab by Stanley Waterloo. Chapter Seventeen. The Comrades. Drifting away in various directions toward their homes, the cave and shell people still kept in groups by instinct. Social functions terminated before dark, and guests going and coming kept together for mutual protection in those days of the cave bear and other beasts. But on the day of the Feast of the Mammoth there was somewhat less than the usual precautions shown. There were vigorous and well-armed hunters at hand by scores, and under such escort women and children might travel after dusk with a degree of safety, unless, indeed, the great cave-tiger Sabretooth chanced to be abroad, but he was more rarely to be met than others of the wild beasts of the time. When he came it was as a thunderbolt, and there were death and mourning in his trail." The march through the forest as the shadows deepened was most watchful. There was a keen lookout on the part of the men, and the women kept their children well in hand. From time to time one family after another detached itself from the main body, and melted into the forest on the path to its own cave near at hand. Thus Hilltop and his family left the group in which were Ab and Oak, and glances of fire followed them as they went. The two girls, Lightfoot and Moonface, had walked together, chattering like crows. They had strung red berries upon grasses, and had hung them in their hair and around their necks, and were fine creatures. Lightfoot, as was her wont, laughed freakishly at whatever pleased her, and in her merry mood had an able second in her sturdy companion. There were moments, though, when even the irrepressible Lightfoot was thoughtful, and so quiet that the girl who was with her wondered. The greater girl had been lightly touched with that unnameable force which has changed men and women throughout all the ages. The picture of Ab's earnest face was in her mind, and would not depart. She could not, of course, define her own mood, nor did she attempt it. She felt within herself a certain quaking, as of fear, at the thought of him, and yet, so she told herself again and again, she was not afraid. All the time she could see Ab's face, with its look of longing and possession, but with something else in it, when his eyes met hers, which she could not name nor understand. She could not speak of him, but Moonface had upon her no such stilling influence. "'They look alike,' she said. Lightfoot assented, knowing the girl meant Ab and Oak. "'But Ab is taller and stronger,' Moonface continued, and Lightfoot assented as indifferently, for somehow of the two she had remembered definitely one only. She became daring in her reflections— what if he should want to carry me to his cave? And then she tried to run away from the thought, and from anything and everybody else, leaping forward, outracing, and leaving all the company. She reached her father's cave far ahead of the others, and stood laughing at the entrance as the family and Moonface, a guest for the night, came trotting up. And Ab, the buoyant and strong, was not himself as he journeyed with the homeward-pressing company. His mood changed, and he dropped away from Oak, and lagged in the rear of the little band as it wound its way through the forest. Slight time was needed for others to recognise his mood, and he was strong of arm and quick of temper, as all knew well, and so he was soon left to stalk behind in independent sulkiness. He felt a weight in his breast, a fiery spot burned there. He was fierce with Oak, because Oak had looked at Lightfoot with a warm light in his eyes. He, when he should have known that Ab was looking at her. This made rage in his heart, and sadness came too, because he was perplexed over the girl. "'How can I get her?' he mumbled to himself as he stalked along." Meanwhile, at the van of the company, there was noise and frolic. Assembled in force, they were for the hour free from dread of the haunting terror of wild beasts, and satisfied with eating, the cave and shell people were in one of the merriest moods of their lives, collectively speaking. 
The young men were especially jubilant and exuberant of demeanour. Their sport was rough and dangerous. There were scuffling and wrestling, and the more reckless threw their stone axes, sometimes at each other, always, it is true, with warning cries, but with such wild unconscious strength put in the throwing that the finding of a living target might mean death. Ab, engrossed in thoughts of something far apart from the rude sport about him, became nervously impatient. Like the girl, he wanted to escape from his thoughts, and bounding ahead to mingle with the darting and swinging group in front, he was soon the swift and stalwart leader in their foolishly risky sport, the centre of the whole commotion. One muscled man would hurl his stone hatchet or strong flint-headed spear at a green tree, and another would imitate him until a space in advance was covered, and the word given for a rush, when all would race for the target, each striving to reach it first and detach his own weapon before others came. It was a merry but too careless contest, with a chance of some serious happening. There followed a series of these mad games, and the oldsters smiled as they heard the sound of vigorous contest, and themselves raced as they could, to keep in close company with the stronger force. Ab had shown his speed in all his playing. Now he ran to the front and plucked out his spear, a winner, then doubled and ran back beside the pathway to mingle with the central body of travellers, having in mind only to keep in the heart and forefront of as many contests as possible. There was more shouting and another rush from the main body, and bounding aside from all, he ran to get the chance of again hurling his spear as well. A great oak stood in the middle of the pathway, and toward it already a spear or two had been sent, all aimed, as the first thrower had indicated, at a white fungus growth which protruded from the tree. It was a matter of accuracy this time. Ab leapt ahead some yards in advance of all and hurled his spear. He saw the white chips fly from the side of the fungus target, saw the quivering of the spear shaft with the head deep sunken in the wood, and then felt a sudden shock and pain in one of his legs. He fell sideways off the path, and beneath the brushwood, as the wild band, young and old, swept by, he was crippled and could not walk. He called aloud, but none heard him amid the shouting of that careless race. He tried to struggle to his feet, but one leg failed him, and he fell back, lying prone, just aside from the forest path, nearly weaponless and the easy prey of the wild beasts. What had hurt him so grievously was a spear thrown wildly from behind him. It had, hurled with great strength, struck a smooth tree trunk and glanced aside, the point of the spear striking the young man fairly in the calf of the leg, entering somewhat the bone itself, and shocking, for the moment, every nerve. The flint sides had cut a vein or two, and these were bleeding, but that was nothing. The real danger lay in his helplessness. Ab was alone, and would afford good eating for those of the forest who, before long, would be seeking him. The scent of the wild beast was a wonderful thing. The man tried to rise, then lay back sullenly. Far in the distance, and growing fainter and fainter, he could hear the shouts of the laughing spear-throwers. The strong young man, thus left alone to death almost inevitable, did not altogether despair. He had still with him his good stone axe and his long and keen stone knife. He would, at least, hurt something sorely before he was eaten, he thought grimly to himself and then he pressed leaves together on the cut upon his leg, and laid himself back upon the leaves and waited. He did not have to wait long, he had not thought to do so. How full the woods were of blood-scenting and man-eating things none knew better than he. His ear, keen and trained, caught the patter of a distant approach. Wolves, he said to himself at first, and then hyenas, for the step was puzzling. He was perplexed. The step was regular, and it was not in the forest on either side, but was coming up the path. A terror came upon him, and he had crawled deeper into the shades when he noted that the steps first ceased, and then that they wandered searchingly and uncertainly. Then, loud and strong, rang out a voice, calling his name, and it was the voice of Oak. He could not answer for a moment, and then he cried out gladly. 
Oak had, in the forward-rushing group, seen Ab's hurt and fall, but had thought it a trifling matter, since no outcry came from those behind, and so had kept his course away and ahead with the rest. But finally he had noted the absence of Ab and had questioned, and then, first telling some of his immediate companions that they were to lag and wait for him, had started back upon a run to reach the place where he had last seen his friend. It was easy now to arrange wet leaves about Ab's crippling, but little more than temporary wound. The two, one leaning upon the other and hobbling painfully, and each with weapons in hand, contrived at last to reach Oak's lingering and grumbling contingent. Ab was helped along by two instead of one, then, and the rest was easy. When the pathway leading to home was reached, Oak accompanied his friend, and the two passed the night together. Ab, once on his own bed, with Oak crouched beside him, was surprised to find not merely that his physical pain was going, but that the greater one was gone. The weight and burning had left his breast, and he was no longer angry at Oak. He thought blindly but directly toward conclusions. He had almost wanted to kill Oak, all because each saw the charm of, and wanted the possession of, a slender, beautiful creature of their kind. Then something dangerous had happened to him, and this same Oak, his friend, the man he had wished to kill, had come back and saved his life. The sense which we call gratitude, and which is not unmingled with what we call honour, came to this young caveman then. He thought of many things, worried and wakeful as he was, and perhaps made more acute of perception by the slight, exciting fever of his wound. He thought of how the two, he and Oak, had planned and risked together, of their boyish follies and failures and successes, and of how in later years Oak had often helped him, of how he had saved Oak's life once in the river swamp, where quicksands were, of how Oak had now offset even that debt by carrying him away from certain ending amid wild beasts. No one, and of the cavemen he knew many, no one in all the careless merry party had missed him save Oak. He doubtless could not have told himself why it was, but he was glad that he could repay it all and have the balance still upon his side. He was glad that he had the secret of the bow and arrow to reveal. That should be Oak's. So it came that late that night, when the fire in the cave had burned low, and when one could not wisely speak above a whisper, Ab told Oak the story of the new weapon, of how it had been discovered, of how it was to be used, and of all it was for hunters and fighters. Furthermore, he brought his best bow and best arrows forth, and told Oak they were his, and that they would practice together in the morning. His astonished and delighted companion had little to say over the revelation. He was eager for the morning, but he straightened out his limbs upon the leafy mattress, and slept well. So, somewhat later, did the half-feverish Ab. Morning came, and the cave people were astir. There was brief though hearty feeding, and then Ab and Oak and Old Mock, to whom Ab had said much aside, went away from the cave and into the forest. There Oak was taught the potency of the new weapon, its deadly quality, and the safety of distance it afforded its user. It was a great morning for all three, not excepting the stern and critical old teacher, when they thus met together in the wood, and the secret of what two had found was so transmitted to another. As for Oak, he was fairly aflame with excitement. He was far from slow of mind, and he recognised in a moment the enormous advantage of the new way of killing, either the things they ate or the things they dreaded most. He could scarcely restrain his eagerness to experiment for himself. Before noon had come, he was gone, carrying away the bow and the good arrows. As he disappeared in the wood, Ab said nothing, but to himself he thought, "'He may have all the bows and arrows he can make, but I will have Lightfoot myself.' 
Ab and Mock started for the cave again, Ab, bow in hand and with ready arrow. There was a patter of feet upon leaves in the wood beside them, and then the arrow was fitted to the string, while old Mock, strong-armed if weak-legged, raised aloft his spear. The two were seeking no conflict with wild beasts today, and were but defensive and alert. They were puzzled by the sound their quick ears caught. Patter-patter, ever beside them, but deep in the forest shade came the sound of menacing followers of some sort. There was tension of nerves. Old Mock, sturdy and unconsciously fatalistic, was more self-contained than the youth at his side, bow-armed and with flint-axe and knife ready for instant use. At last an open space was reached, across which ran the well-worn path. Now the danger must reveal itself. The two men emerged into the glade, and a moment later there bounded into it, gambling and full of welcome, the wolf-cubs, which had played about the cave so long, who were now detached from their own kind and preferred the companionship of man. There was laughter then, and a more careless demeanour with the weapon born. End of chapter 17